Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Hey, Sean Stewart, great to be in conversation with you on Remembrance Day, the 11th of November, 2022. Hey, guys. Great to connect, guys. So, Stuart, how are you going to observe Remembrance Day? Uh, is there something you do? Is there a tradition you have? Tell us. Um, I think the way we're doing it. So I did this interesting story a couple of years ago for the post about how our colleague Luke in Alberta has a stat holiday today. And in Ontario, we don't. And there's this tension between is it better to have people sitting around at home or is it better to get them into the schools and work and everything? Um, so my daughter is at school right now. She's getting deep into Remembrance Day. Um, any kind of day like this, she just dives in head first. So I think that's the thing we're going to do is we're going to be talking to her about this stuff. And I, it's she's six. So some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't. And they talked a little bit at school about animals in warfare and that seems to have really struck a chord with her wow. um, so i'm sure we'll be talking about that today what about you sean uh you're in the united states coming to us from new york on this podcast so you've got veterans day Do americans make a same kind of big deal that we do out of remembrance day i've never been able to really calibrate where veterans day fits into the panoply of american civic observances uh, no it's funny right i was just saying that uh th- th- this morning um you, you, you know, I'm in New York, so take that with a grain of salt. Maybe things are different in, in Washington or other parts of the United States where um, the mili- military tradition is sort of a deeper part of the culture. But I'm struck, actually, that for all of the um, emphasis on the, the military and uh, as, a, as a key institution in the United States, um, that my experience is Remembrance Day is more kind of widely recognized in Canada and um, and just seems to raise up to a, a higher level in terms of the, the role of major political figures, business leaders, civic leaders, et cetera. This is one instance where Canadians seem prepared to let their um, kind of civic patriotism express itself. And I think that's a, a, a deeply healthy thing. How about you, Roger? Yeah, well, look, on the back half of the show, we're going to go deeper into Remembrance Day because we had a great piece uh, today in the Hub just about what the heck's happening with Remembrance Day. Uh, I'm certainly seeing less poppies on people's coats around Toronto. Uh, we're on the back half of the show. Let's go deeper into that and try to understand, you know, what's happening here. Is this once kind of truly, I think, if I ever thought of what is the universal day of kind of civic observance in Canada that at least my growing up was kind of genuinely experienced and heartfelt and didn't have frankly the frothiness of let's say Canada day or the obsolescence of Victoria day here in the province of Ontario, it would be remembrance day. So let's do that in the back half of the show. In the first half though, I want to talk tech with you because it's been a crazy week uh, in tech. Um, uh, The second largest uh, cryptocurrency exchange, um, up to a week ago, had a 
a market cap evaluation of uh, close to $30 billion. It's now worth nothing uh, today, November 11, as we record. Uh, that sent some big reverberations around the cryptocurrency world. And there's a series of policy issues. I think it'd be great to dig in with you. And then let's also, in this first half, find a little time to talk about Elon Musk's second, or is it his third? I've lost track, wild week uh, at Twitter. But let me come to you first, Sean, on the FTX. Uh, that's the name of the exchange that zeroed out, uh, melted down. I guess I look at this, Sean, and I think to myself, I've always been a skeptic uh, of cryptocurrencies to the extent to which you can have your cake and eat it too, that you can have a store of value, yet no regulation, um, very little, if any, transparency. And here we have, Sean, yet another example of a meltdown of an exchange, investors losing everything. This is a pattern. It keeps repeating itself. I guess I ask, what the heck's the response? Uh, do we just let this go on, train wreck after train wreck? People are getting hurt. Uh, and I do feel sympathy for those that were hugely enthusiastic about crypto. Uh, great to have that enthusiasm, that excitement about the future. But boy, are they paying a steep, steep price uh, this week with the FTX collapse. This is such a juicy story, guys. There are so many different threads to pull on. Um, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, the the figure behind FTX, you know, was in the last uh, election cycle, I, I believe, the single largest donor to the Democratic Party. So there's a kind of political angle. Um, there's an ideological or philosophical angle, the extent to which he's also the principal benefactor behind a movement known as the Effective Altruism Movement. Uh, uh, that is a, a major supporter of philanthropic activities all around the world, rooted in a, a kind of uh, a, a modern utilitarianism, which uh, effectively says uh, um, that these types of issues can be quantified, uh, you know, almost a kind of Silicon Valley version of, of philanthropy. Um, there's a Canadian angle. Um, uh, Binance, the, the firm that seems to have been behind um, exposing um, some of the uh, financial uh, weakness of FTX uh, is head, head up by someone who spent his formative years in Vancouver and graduated from McGill University. So there's just all of these different angles. That I've been following this story so closely because it's so fascinating. But to come directly to your question, Rudyard, you know, it seems to me that you that for a long time FT, FTX uh, was uh, an outlier in the kind of crypto meltdown of uh, 2021 and into 2022. Um, the fact that it now looks like it itself was resting on uh, a, a kind of a, a flimsy house of cards, uh, I think is is probably put an end to the the crypto hysteria of the past couple of years. And and you know effectively, I think reminded people um, that. Uh, of the kind of benefits of of physical assets, you know, uh, my dad used to say, you know, you want to own things that people can eat <laughs> um, or people can uh, live in. That those are, uh, you know, the kind of reliable bets that you want to make in the economy. That might be uh, over overstating things, um, but in hindsight, um, this seems to have been an entire asset class kind of driven up by. Um, a combination of irrational exuberance and 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 cheap money. Um, what, what's what's your take, Rudyard? Um, Sean, yeah, I would build on that point of yours that you know everything is possible when there's no cost to capital. And um, you know, Ontario pe 
teacher's plan, one of our largest pensions in Canada was kind of suckered into the um, this exuberant, uh, almost kind of FOMO hysteria around crypto. They made a major investment in um, FTX at a at a value at the top of its valuation. I think close to thirty billion dollars. They're now writing that off to zero. And I, I guess it just goes back to what you know I've said before um, on this program that there's there's this kind of I, we want our cake and eat it too philosophy that to me just fundamentally doesn't work with many of those cryptocurrencies, which is we, we don't want the encumbrances of a fiat currency, which are, you know, a, a court system that you can appeal to if you feel that your property rights have been abused. Uh, regulators who will look out over the capitalization of the banks or other institutions where you hold your deposits. The world of crypto, understandably, in the name of freedom, wants to get rid of all of that all of the, in a sense, operating costs of uh, money uh, and instead enjoy all the upside, which is, you know, seamless, uh, lightning fast uh, transit transmission and, and settlement. And I get that. It's, it's an intoxicating idea, but you can't have one and the other. And what seems to happen with each and every one of these blowups is the, the story is that the the founder, uh, you know, the Willy Wonka uh, sitting there in the candy factory of crypto creates a bunch of coins. They're ascribed a value by himself or herself. And and then they trade as if they actually have a, a store of value. Um, and they do to the extent that someone will buy them at a certain price. That gives them a value. But the fact is they make these additional claims that these, these coins are backed, that there's some set of assets held in reserve, usually other cryptocurrencies, sometimes, you know, hard assets, but the backing never seems to be what it actually is claimed to be. And then when they come under stress, and in this case, the allegation is that Sam had a conveniently uh, a hedge fund at arm's length. Well, maybe it wasn't so much at arm's length where he was taking deposits out of FTX transferring them to the hedge fund. The hedge fund then was engaged in really risky uh, leveraged bets on other cryptocurrencies. It lost a lot of money. And guess what? The backing that he constantly talked about for his own exchange, which was part of the coin, the, F, the FTX coin went to zero and the whole house of cards comes crumbling down. So this pattern keeps repeating itself over and over again. And it to me, it just suggests that there's just a fundamental incoherence, something illogical about cryptocurrencies that for money to work as a store of value, which every currency has to have that function. Uh, yes, it's a unit of exchange, but it's also a store of value. You kind of need all that other stuff. It's inconvenient. It's messy. It's often slow. Sometimes it feels like an imposition on your freedom of rights. But in the absence of a regulator, in the absence of a court of law, in the absence, arguably, of standing armies, you know, part of the reason the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency is they also, hey, by coincidence, have the world's largest military. These things are connected to each other. And I don't know, Stuart. We, we have a lot of enthusiastic crypto writers on the hub uh, website. Uh, I enjoy giving them a space. I enjoy their arguments. But I wonder if this suddenly, as Sean says, is a moment where the penny starts to drop and people realize that you can't have your cake and eat it too. It's just, it's too easy. It's too convenient. It's magical thinking.
Yeah, I, the, the people who come out looking best in this are the people who procrastinated on figuring out cryptocurrencies and just never got involved. And I know a lot of people like that who are just like, oh, good, it's over. Uh, <laughs> something I don't have to think about now. Um, I think um, I I love doing this podcast every week because I do feel like we are in uh, a real moment in history in a, for a few reasons. And, you know, the end of easy money is definitely one of them. And we are seeing this through all of tech, the layoffs that are happening. And something actually took my eye in the New York Times piece on, you know, the kind of craziness at Twitter. Uh, Elon Musk sent a memo saying, just make sure there are no ghost employees that we're giving bonuses or severance to. And it was an interesting little thing in there because I, you know, I worked in Alberta for nearly a decade and I was around for the good times and the bad times in the oil industry. I worked in newspapers at the tail end of the good times. And one of the things that I heard about while I was at the Edmonton Journal from like the glory years of newspapers is there were people who were drawing a paycheck who didn't actually come into the building. There was a guy whose job was eliminated. He would come in every morning, put his coat on a peg. He would go to the city center mall and hang around for eight hours. And then he would come and get his coat and go home. And that was because there was so many people, they were making so much money that they didn't care. Like there wasn't enough uh, incentive to actually look through the books. And every time you know, the oil industry deals with one of these ebbs, uh, this happens. There's this kind of carnage in the workforce and it cuts a lot of fat. Um, it also cuts a lot of necessary jobs too. And it's really chaotic. Um, but it's just one of those things we have to deal with. And I think this is just a moment for the tech industry, which was, I think, over-reliant on that easy money. Um, if you look at the way Musk bought Twitter, it was a leveraged buyout. And now he's got debt that he has to service. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's a long-suffering Manchester United fan like me knows that they were a leveraged buyout um, by the, the American owners. And the team can't be competitive because they're servicing this debt all the time. You can't actually do new and exciting things. And you're kind of forced into business arrangements that maybe you wouldn't do in a perfect world. And um, it's something to pay attention to with, you know, Twitter is the most obvious example of this we're watching right now. Um, but things could get difficult in the tech world, mm -hmm. even going forward after they do all this kind of bloodletting with the layoffs. That's a nice pivot uh, to to Twitter. So thank you for that, sir. Because part of, you know, Sean, what Musk's bold vision is to try to rescue Twitter from, as he described this week, a real uh, essentially existential risk of bankruptcy is the idea of replicating the Chinese version of WeChat to have a single seamless platform that provides not only the functions of a social network, but uh, banking payments, um, shopping exchange. Again, another great vision from another great Willy Wonka character in Elon Musk. But when you kind of put together the F FTX story, and then you think, well, what's the future of you know, any of these enclosed digital systems? You know, are we gonna trust Elon Musk to be somehow more prescient, responsible, frankly, honest um, than any other kind of operator of any other, you know, enclosed system. And I just wonder if this isn't, in a sense, Sean, all building on top of each other, that tech is melting down, capital is no longer free. Maybe this time, finally, regulators are going to step in because FTX was, in a sense, the poster child of a more regulated, uh, responsible version of crypto. Um we were talking about, you know, a crypto winter a couple months ago. Is this now a tech winter that's going to blow through the economy here in North America um, 
in the months and years to come. Yeah, I think there's something to that. Um, you know, a lot of the enthusiasm and energy and growth in our economy over the past several years has been in the intangible parts of our economy, and there's been less progress in the tangible parts. You know, Peter Thiel likes to say all the actions in the world of bits and not in the world of atoms. And, you know, it seems to me one of the reasons we find ourselves in this uh, high era of inflation is because of the lack of progress in the physical economy, too few homes being built, too little energy being developed, uh, too little healthcare capacity being um, being created. Um, and, you know, so I, I do think that independent of what we're this kind of meltdown in crypto and tech more broadly, I think there's a growing recognition um, that we need to recommit ourselves to uh, the supply side of our economy in the, the physical, tangible parts um, that have gone, um, um, you know, it seems to me neglected for too long. And let me just make one final point. It, it, there's various reasons why the focus has been on the intangible part. Part of it is the, the capital, uh, capital formation issues that Rudyard talks about a lot on this show. Um, but a, a big part of it is that we've, we've over-regulated the physical part of the economy and under-regulated the intangible part. And uh, it's not a surprise that that's where energy ideas and capital has flowed. And, and so, you know, I think what we need to see going forward is a major rebalancing probably some new role for regulation um, when it comes to things like tech and, and crypto, but a serious deregulation agenda when it comes to housing, energy, manufacturing, et cetera. We need to start building again. Um, and mm -hmm. one hopes that we're in a, an era in which that transition is occurring both kind of intellectually and economically. Yeah, it's a great insight. And I would just wrap up this section with just a final comment that we need to also devalorize the disruptor. We have, we've engaged over the last decade or so in this relentless worshiping of the likes of Elon Musk, uh, Sam uh, Bankman-Fried, the, the head of the creator of FTX, the 30-year-old wonder child who used to have a net worth of $16 billion seven days ago. It's now zero. Um, so there's some karmic justice in the world. But th this relentless, again, sense that everything is about disruption. Everything is subject to disruption um, and sounds great, but let's understand that these disruptors, including Elon Musk and, and Tesla are the beneficiaries of massive public subsidies. They're not doing this entirely in, you know, some Anne Randian Icarus like uh, world of pure free markets and pure individual freedom. They're subsidized. They are, they are profitized, profitizing off, um, off public subsidies. They are uh, given all kinds of social license that frankly, Sean, the businesses that you've talked about just now, housing, energy, and others would die for, and that we never seem to give them that the kind of social license that these companies have to, to take our data and use it for whatever purposes they want to engage in, uh, quote, publication with no threat of, uh, you know, of a uh, lawsuit or sanctions that other aspects of the media have to deal with. I'm just tired of it. I'm tired of, um, again, uh, not understanding that there are other parts of the economy, as Sean mentioned, that are just as important. In fact, maybe more important in a supply constrained world in a world facing 
inflation. So let's kind of dial back the the cult of worship around Silicon Valley and return hopefully to some sense of actually what's important in an economy that's going to function in the 21st century. Okay, that was my rant for the day. I only get one. Um, Let's take a break right now. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about what the heck happened to Remembrance Day. Um, Seems kind of quieter this year. Is that just, uh, you know, one-off? Some... Something as prosaic as people don't have money in their pockets to pay for poppies to put on their coats because we're all uh, using tap? Or is there something bigger going on? Is there a cultural shift underway? We'll have that conversation for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Hi, everybody. Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I'm here on our regular Friday roundtable with Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief, Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large. Stuart, let me come to you first on uh, the Remembrance Day question this year that I'm having. I think others are too. Something maybe seems to be happening with how we perceive the importance of this day relative to years in the past. Certainly, the number of people wearing poppies in Toronto strikes me as less than normal. Um, I'll be curious to see what the crowd is like at my local cenotaph. Um, What's your take? Is something going on? Because I do remember, Stuart, I'm old enough. I'm 52 as of tomorrow. Happy birthday, guys. Thanks. Um, I remember as early, you know, in the the 90s and early 2000s, before the Afghanistan war, there was similar worrying about Remembrance Day and the extent to which it was slipping away. And the war in Afghanistan and Canada's participation in that effort really brought Remembrance Day back um, in the first decade of this century. Uh, so is this just episodic or are we seeing a bigger shift? Yeah, so just from sort of practical experience, um, I don't have any change on me ever. Um, I just don't have that. And my daughter has been asking for poppies every time we pass one. And I'm always like, well, next time we'll bring change. So I think that's probably a factor here, Um, especially I think the pandemic kind of accelerated all this stuff. Um, You know, Canada is one of the most digital uh, countries in terms of payments. Um, I think that's definitely a factor. Um, I think the Legion has to kind of get it together with these poppies that are so easy to lose. I'm assuming there was some kind of uh, cynical calculation here that if people lose them more, they have to buy them again. And there's, you know, money in that. Um, but I think maybe um, you can only push that goodwill so far. Um, so I would say maybe stick a safety pin in there if you can, some way to hook it on. Um, there are like hacks to get it on properly, but I think we shouldn't be doing that. Um, but the piece today from Jerry, I think, put, puts his he put his finger on something that I think is also true, which is that 
people don't know history the way they used to. And I think you get into a little bit of a danger of old man yelling at clouds um, situation here where you're saying it's the kid's fault for not learning. But I think Jerry is smart in that he blames the schools um, for either A, not teaching history or B, um, teaching it in a way that makes people think that, you know, Canada's history is, is an entirely negative thing and we shouldn't honor it. Um, so I think maybe in the past we were sort of uncritically valorizing our own history and now we've sort of gone the complete other direction where um, we're too embarrassed to even talk about it. And I, I think that's kind of a sad thing. I think maybe, you know, the, the statues coming down, the sort of, um, you know, we had some trouble actually resisting that from our leaders and saying, and actually defending them. I thought that Jason Kenney did a good job, but it became sort of a partisan thing where only conservatives were defending Canadian history and uh, liberals were not. I think that's bad. I think that seeps into the culture. Um, and just rather than, you know, making people more critical of our history, it just makes them apathetic. And I think that's probably what we're seeing here. Yeah, I think it's more than just sad. I, I think it's worrying. Um, you know, we've talked on this podcast um, in previous episodes that according to Statistics Canada, by 2041, half of the population will be first or second generation immigrants uh, in some parts of the country. Of course, that number will be far above 50% um, because of the tendency for um, immigration to concentrate in a relatively small number of places. As our country becomes more heterogeneous, more diverse and heterogeneous, you know, it seems to me there is an incumbency on our um, civic leaders, political leaders and others um, to kind of create the conditions that produces a connective tissue that that connects us all. Um, otherwise, we risk becoming uh, what uh, Jonathan Sachs used to call a, a, a hotel society as opposed to a, a home society. And so, Sean, for the sake of debate, let me jump in here. Like, I, I agree with you. There's a, you know, a lot that you just said that many of our listeners would agree with. But let's try to be a little bit provocative for a moment here. You know, Henry Ford's famous quote, history is bunk, right? Like maybe just there's no putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. There's no going back to a Canada of the 1960s or 70s that was predominantly white and didn't have a lot of immigration. We are a different country now, and it's time to accept that. And it's time to find different ways to to express national unity. Maybe it's sports. You know, there's a lot of like here in Toronto, the Raptors are just an incredible source of, of commonality and shared identity. And is that any better or any worse than, I don't know, knowing about Dieppe or D-Day? Like, again, I'm being provocative here. I, and I think I have the right to, because I spent 10 years leading a charity called the Dominion Institute, where I did nothing but think, breathe and eat Canadian history and try to get Canadian history into schools and develop programs. I've done my time in the trenches of Canadian history, guys. So I know of what I speak. And I've just come to a point in my life where I think, you know what? I'm not going to force feed the goose anymore. If people don't want it, they don't want it. If we're a post-national society, we are a post-national society. Maybe the prime minister was right. And we can, again, sound like angry men yelling at clouds, but the country has moved on. It is moving on. And, and we need to find those touchstones, Sean, I agree with you, because as we become heterogeneous and diverse, you need unity in society. But to expect that history is going to do that lifting for us, I don't know. It just seems like maybe that's not the right emphasis or allocation. We need to search out other sources of belonging and rootedness. You and I, we might like it to be Canadian history, but that boat has sailed. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, but it seems to me that 
liberalism and pluralism are necessary but insufficient conditions for that kind of sense of shared citizenship. You, you know, um, Andrew Coyne wrote a great column in July 2021 where he talked about a, a civic nationalism. The problem with that is many of the, the principles or values that he said could be the source of a, a shared sense of, of nationhood, like 150 other countries around the world uh, would see themselves in. You know, it strikes me as, as I say, a kind of insufficient, a necessary but insufficient condition. And so, you know, if it's not Canadian citizenship, what is it? Uh, I, I worry. I think that this I think that this is a kind of underexplored issue in a lot of mainstream Canadian commentary, because most of the commentary has kind of swallowed hook, line and sinker. The, the multicultural myth is if somehow that's going to be um, a source of connective tissue. Um, maybe it's the Raptors. I, I, I don't know. But I, I do think that it's something we ought to spend more time thinking about because because we're going through this kind of extraordinary transformation as a society. And I, I, I don't know when it's over, kind of what holds us together. Well, let's bring Stuart into this. I mean, Stuart, what, what if we just decided we'll be a country without an identity? I mean, we've been having that debate for a long time now. I wrote a book on it in, if you care, 2009. Um, you know, Hotel Canada was a, was a slogan, an epitaph we threw around, you know, a decade and a half ago. Maybe that's just what we are. Like, and instead of sweating all this stuff, instead of tying ourselves up in knots about it, instead of, you know, the stroom and the drang, just accept it. We're, we're a loose amalgam of individuals who come together out of self-interest to pursue our personal objectives and goals. It's no better. It's no worse. It's kind of the Ikea of 21st century uh, nations. That's what we are. Great meatballs in the cafeteria, furniture you put together yourself. Um <laughs> It's it's not any more complicated or rich or sophisticated. Maybe that's a loss, but it it is who we are. Yeah, I think I will admit that some of my stridency on this topic is because of my fear about that uh, very thing. Because I I think maybe it's worth thinking about how difficult it has been, um, and probably good for the country in the long run. But dealing with sort of a distinct society in Quebec within the federation um, has that's probably the paramount difficulty of Canada as a country. And I just can't imagine how it gets um, worse if we just have no identity, because we were sort of cobbling together an identity from two nations. Um, and I think that's, you know, probably true. If I were to, you know, give me truth serum, I would probably say if I were on balance guessing if Canada had a national identity going forward, um, I would probably say no. Um, I think that's just the nature of the country. And you see what's happening in the West where a more distinct identity is coming out of the West. BC, it's amazing to me how little people in central Canada know what's happening in BC. I'm an East Coaster. I grew up mainly in Halifax. Um, I, I think this is one of those things that if we accept it, which I'm almost there, uh, I, I think I, I do still have some optimism about, you know, the, the common story of Canada tying us together. But if we do accept it, we have to accept the limitations that imposes on us as a country where maybe we just can't do hard things, national projects, uh, even pipelines that go across several provinces. These become really hard because everyone's just looking out for themselves. And that is a serious limitation of what we can do as a country. Great insights. Well, let me bring in uh, Amal Adder-Guzman, who's a producer of this podcast. She's 20-something. Um, 
and uh, is the child of immigrants to Canada. So Amal, you're much closer kind of to the demographic that people are worrying about. Um, I know personally, talking to you, you have a lot of pride about being Canadian and about the country, but what do you think about this discussion of what the, where that pride and identity should be rooted? Should it be rooted in our past? Should it be rooted in something else? I think it can be rooted in both. Why should it be one against the other? I think in my experience, for my family specifically, so they came as refugees. So they were in countries where there was war and there was conflict and there was a lot of suffering. When they came to Canada, it was more of a safe haven for them. It was a place where they can be safe. They can practice whatever religion they can. They can say whatever political beliefs they can. And it's an op- pretty much of a, more of like an open society and open dialogue. The reason why those conditions became why Canada is, is that place is because of the sacrifices that the men and women in the past did in World War One, especially in World War Two. Without their sacrifices, my parents couldn't be in a safe place. And we couldn't be in a place right now where I'm able to talk on a podcast because there's many places around the world where people who look like me will get shot down. And that's just the reality of the situation. So I think when we're talking about Remembrance Day, we can talk about like civic duties. We can talk about the history of the past. But I also think there is benefit of expanding the narrative to talk about how lucky we are, but also how far we come while acknowledging that there's still a lot of work to do. And about the multiculturalism bit, I think sometimes Remembrance Day history tends to be very whitewashed. But just recently, a couple of days ago, on November 8th, we celebrate Remembrance for Indigenous Veterans. We should talk about them, talk about them at the same amount. There's also historically been racialized people all across the world, all across the Commonwealth, who fought in World War I, who fought World War II. So as Canada comes more more multicultural, those stories should also be shared as well. Because I bet you right now there are immigrant populations whose grandparents and great-grandparents who fought in those wars. Mm-hmm. Great, Amal. Yeah, I remember one of my most powerful memories of touring the World War I battlefields of Europe were the, uh, the tombstones, because they were tombstones of hundreds and hundreds of um, Algerian and other North African dead who fought on the side of France. And it's, it's Arabic, uh, you know, script across these tombstones interspersed between, between crosses. It's one of the most, you know, dramatic things that you can see in that, uh, in those massive, those horrible uh, cemeteries and ostuaries. Um, in the battlefield. So Sean, I'm going to give you the last word. You've been kind of holding up the flag here, so to speak, for a shared identity. Has anything that Amal Stewart or I've said made you change your, not change your mind, but reflect on what this day means? And is it time to acknowledge maybe that Remembrance Day isn't going to carry the same load as it did in the past, that it, it will have a different function in the future and um it'll be what it'll be yeah i take you know i think amal's insight um that you know the story of canada is a story of ongoing incremental progress has to be at the core of our national narrative i don't diminish that at all it just seems to me that um if we decide to to pursue the past of a post-national state we're pursuing a social experiment that is um you know that really doesn't have a lot of uh, of evidence to to support, you know, that um, 
fundamentally nation states have been more than just geographic expressions. There's been um, something that connects people. And as we become more heterogeneous, it seems to me that will be even more important, um, you know, and that may not be Remembrance Day, but I, I think then it has to be some kind of national project. You know, we, we can't just rely on um, the Olympics or hockey tournaments every four years. Um, it has to be something more fundamental. And hopefully, you know, the, the hub is doing a small part in being a platform for us to kind of work out um, what that is. Yeah. Great idea. So I always thought some kind of version of national service, um, you know, there are interesting creative ways to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean military service. It could be, you know, teaching in schools. It could be um, volunteering in your community, something where the collectivity of what we, what we are is by everyone understood to be earned. Uh, it's not simply uh, a privilege, um, you know, a convenience. There's some conscious act of of shared citizenship. I don't know if that's the path forward. It's certainly not a conversation that's happening on the national scene at this moment. Guys, a great um, conversation today. We'll do this all again next Friday. And just a reminder to our listeners that uh, you can get uh, all kinds of great Remembrance Day coverage. Check out uh, Jerry uh, Armanek's uh, piece for us, Forgetting to Remember on the Hub uh, today, Friday, the 11th of November, a really interesting, provocative essay titled Forgetting to Remember. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues that's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.